You're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable, and I'm your host, Dr. Laura Humphrey. With me today is Dr. Louis Casalino. Dr. Louis Casalino is professor of psychology at Pepperdine University, holding advanced degrees also in both philosophy and theology. Dr. Casalino is a national expert in the field of neurobiology and has published numerous books and articles on this subject. Welcome, Dr. Casalino. How are you? Great. Today we're discussing neuroplasticity. So what does it even mean to say that the brain is neuroplastic? Well, remember the uh, graduate and Dustin Hoffman getting that advice that uh, you should think about plastics in the future? You know, back in the day, plastics were thought of as being something very flexible as opposed to metal, which was the primary thing, like metal and glass and other sorts of things that were used for household objects and stuff. So I think the notion of plasticity was synonymous back then with flexibility. And so what plasticity means is the ability of neurons to change and bend and adapt to experience and carry different types of information. Of course, now everything is plastic, including our cars, which are quite hard. So the associations to plasticity have changed. But yeah, I guess it basically means the brain's ability, the nervous system's ability to change. And how exactly does this happen? How does the brain act in a neuroplastic way? Well, a lot of different things can happen. One of the things that uh, we've just learned over the last 10 years in humans is that new neurons grow. So there's a process called neurogenesis. So even though, I mean, there are some critters that uh, their entire brains are changing just like our skin changes, or, you know, whatever that wives' tale is that we lose, or we change our skin every seven years mm-hmm. or so. Some animals change their brains, you know, on a regular basis. And that's a decision evolution makes for, you know, for not maintaining old information, but for animals that are in constantly changing environments, having new neurons makes sense. In humans, the decision that evolution made was that the brain should basically retain old learning, but we haven't lost uh, neurogenesis. So one way in which the brain is plastic is that new neurons are generated So we throughout life in certain regions of the brain. And the more we look, the more we discover that uh, there are even more areas that have new brain growth in them. So that's one way. Um, another way is that when we're born, neurons look kind of skimpy. They're kind of like Charlie Brown's Christmas tree. They have a few dendrites here and there, but they're not very impressive. And then over time, by the time we're into uh, child, you know, through childhood and adolescence, they grow to be like the biggest oak trees you've ever seen. Hmm. And some neurons have as many as 20,000 connections with the neurons around them. And so they go from being very scrawny little trees, some of them, to just uh, getting very uh, arborized, it's called, just mm-hmm. like, like branches of a tree. So that's another way that the nervous system is plastic. And what determines how arborized they become? Well, a big factor is, first of all, their location in the brain. Like, in other words, are they, do they require a lot of uh, connections with other neurons because of the job that they're doing? So that's one piece of it. The other piece of it is how much they're stimulated. So the more stimulation they receive, the more they'll expand. So if you look, for example, at the brains of people who play the piano you'll find that the areas of their brain that control the fingers have overlapped adjacent regions and use those regions to expand more and more complex skills. If you look at cab drivers, for example, in London and New York, you find that their hippocampi, which represent the spatial map, are much larger than other people's hippocampi. So are there certain areas of the brain that are more likely to be neuroplastic as we age, or can it be any area? 
Well, I think every area is neuroplastic, but there are some regions that have early critical periods, it seems, like, for example, the primary visual areas. Early in life, we have to get stimulation, it seems, in order to get these areas organized. And if people are born blind or if they lose their sight early on for some reason, it seems that these regions don't develop in the, in the way that they need to. And often they're gerrymandered by other senses. So we notice that in people that, that are blind or become blind, you find that in response to auditory stimulus, you'll see, you'll see activation in the occipital lobe, which is a visual area. And are there critical periods for higher-order cognitive processes, too? Well, it's a great question, and it's, it's really not known at this point. What we've got is some of the old dogma from the 50s and 60s, where it was believed back then that uh, we go through very specific genetically timed critical periods where our brains have to develop these certain abilities or skills at that time, otherwise we lose them forever. But what they're finding now is that in some instances, you can, if you give someone stimulation outside of those critical uh, time periods, what were thought to be critical, you can still develop you know, uh, compensatory skills or skills that were as good as you know, people that were stimulated at the proper time. So this whole notion of critical period now is being replaced by sensitive period. So like we think that there are periods that are more sensitive and that nature appears to have created that, but we're not so sure anymore whether we should close the book on people if they haven't been stimulated at the appropriate time. So our ideas about the plasticity of the brain, we're, we're getting out of that dogma that the brain is fixed early on and we're exploring more ways in which the brain changes throughout life in different ways and, and always surprises us. That's the wonderful thing about the brain. Just when you think you know something, something happens that uh, pulls the rug out from under you. Is there a kind of developmental trajectory, though, that fits? I'm thinking of Piaget's work on cognitive development in children or moral development. Is there a kind of a developmental trajectory of these sensitive periods? You're talking about sensory period versus sort of complex cognitive processes. Yes. You know, I really don't know how to answer that question. I'm not quite sure. What I've learned, though, would make me hold all of those stage theories in question. And if you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Laura Humphrey, and today we're speaking with Dr. Louis Casalino. Dr. Casalino is professor of psychology at Pepperdine University and holds advanced degrees both in philosophy and theology as well. Dr. Casalino is a national expert in the field of neurobiology and has published numerous books and articles on this topic. Today we're talking about neuroplasticity. So can we influence the degree of neuroplasticity that the brain has? I think we can. And I mean, I think that if you compare, for example, students in different classrooms, some teachers are recognized as better teachers and seem to have more of an impact on their students or can take students that were having difficulty learning and help them. So I think that there have to be situational contextual variables that stimulate the brain to be more plastic um, than others. And my suspicion about that is that there's no learning that is cold cognition. In other words, there's no learning that's separated from social relationships. And so a teacher is creating a social emotional environment that's enhancing the learning process. So I suspect that given that we're social creatures, what those teachers are doing through the relationship and through the social context they're creating is that they're stimulating the brain to be more plastic and more receptive to new learning. And that is what differentiates good teachers and maybe not such good teachers, perhaps good therapists and not such good therapists, parents, 
you know, and any situation where there's the transmission of learning from one person or one set of people to another probably even exists in the communication of wisdom from one generation to the other. Mm-hmm. Not all elders are wise elders who are able to transmit wisdom, but those who are, you have this palpable sense when you're with them that you're in the presence of something important, which makes you attend and makes you more susceptible to learning. And what can we do to build this neuroplasticity during childhood, in addition to the social context in which their learning occurs? Are there things parents can do and teachers and doctors? Certainly, stress is the enemy of learning. And when I say that, I don't mean any kind of stress. Mild stress, very mild stress, probably enhances learning. And I guess you would almost call that stress challenge. But when you get to when you get to higher levels of stress, the brain shifts from a receptive mode to a sort of survival mode, which shuts down plasticity. So probably the key thing that you can do is create a non-stressful learning environment for children, but an environment that's more like uh, stimulating and challenging in a, in a safe and caring way. So that's probably a, a key thing. Another thing, too, that I notice often, you know, having been in psychotherapy practice for a couple of decades now, is how difficult it is for children when parents have a vision or a fantasy of who their children are, as opposed to having the ego strength and the time to invest to get to know who their children are. And so one of the things, I think another thing that's really important is to be sensitive to learn what it is your child is interested in and what motivates them so that you can create an environment that takes advantage of their natural direction and their natural impulses. What about children who have learning disabilities or attention deficits? Well, I think with learning disabilities, usually what you have is an array of strengths and weaknesses. And so I think someone who does a good evaluation and establishes a good learning environment takes the child's strengths and figures out a way to use those to compensate for and help them build up some of their weaknesses. So I think that's a piece of it. As far as attention deficit disorder, what we see as hyperactivity and distractibility can have a number of sources. Some of those kids have uh, a brain-based problem where their frontal, air, their frontal lobes, for example, are developing more slowly, and so they need help with medication on the one hand, or this uh, distractibility and hyperactivity agitation could also be a symptom of depression. It could be symptoms of a manic defense. If I work with children that look hyperactive, but when you get to meet their parents and you realize how distractible and distressing the parents are, you can see this hyperactivity almost as a form of defense against dealing with the reality of the parents. And so I think each case has to be looked at in depth and figure out what the best you know, way to cope with it is and treat it. So it's not only the genetic transmission of that hyperactivity, but it's the actual relationship between the parent and the child that may be contributing to the child's. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. There are many paths to what is diagnosed as uh, attention deficit disorder. I think the reflex in many places is to uh, medicate, and the medication may have some effect, but if it's a systems problem you may not be hitting the real cause of it. And I'm fascinated by um, you having a degree in theology as well, and I'm wondering what, if any, relationship you believe there is between faith or a spiritual practice and the brain's function. Well, I think the uh, number of them, I mean, uh, first thing that comes to mind is the fact that, you know, is the research from psychoneuroimmunology that associates being a member of a community of faith, getting that kind of social support, and having that kind of certainty, theological certainty, 
correlates with uh, more with better well-being and, and immunological health and those sorts of things. So there's that avenue that I think is very important. Another important area is this whole notion of mindfulness, and this is more Eastern tradition of uh, you know of theology, where the uh, the importance of being aware of your internal processes, your emotional state, the in, your internal dialogue, and living a life more consciously and less reflectively. So I think those are two traditions that I've studied in the process of my theological um, work that have been helpful in, in my work in neurobiology and psychotherapy. I want to thank Dr. Louis Casolino, who has been our guest today, and we've been discussing neuroplasticity. I'm Dr. Laura Humphrey. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.